Good evening. Welcome to the Seymour Centre. I'm Tim Jones, the Artistic Director. For over 20 years, the Seymour has been committed to arts education through the production and presentation of events that, that complement curricular study of the arts. More recently, the Seymour Centre has curated a dedicated arts education program where this brief has expanded to investigate how the study of all art forms across primary and secondary can find value in, our, in the programs that we present. Arts education can add so much to the education of so many across a, multi a multitude of disciplines. The Seymour, as part of the university, sees our role as very much advocating for the overall health and future growth of all the arts within the education sector. Tonight is part of an important national discussion and we're very glad that the Seymour can host this forum. So it's my pleasure to now kick it off by introducing the panel chair, Associate Professor Michael Anderson, Faculty of Education and Social Work at the University of Sydney. Michael. Good evening and thanks everyone for uh, coming out tonight in uh, what looks like it might be a rainy evening but hopefully there will be a whole lot of warmth in terms of light and uh, perhaps even a little bit of heat in here this evening. Uh, before we uh, get into the rest of the program, I'd like to invite Warinda and Destiny to do an acknowledgement of country. Welcome to Aboriginal land, always was, always will be. When you walk here today, you walk among our spirits of our ancestors. We show respect for our ancestors by maintaining cultural practices and being proud of our identity and culture. We ask you to recognise the importance of this place to all Aboriginal people, past, present and future. For many years, Aboriginal people have struggled, but we have survived and remained strong. We believe our country has a special role to play in the healing of our people. We now invite you to join us in celebrating the survival and strength of our people and culture so that we can create and share future for all. Welcome. What we're going to do tonight is each one of the panel members is going to respond to a question from me and then uh, we'll go in turn and then what will happen after that is we'll open it up to the audience for questions. There's two microphones, one on each side. Uh, there'll be uh, kind of two minutes maximum for questions or comments and if you could uh, identify yourself and uh, also um, just just uh, speak, speak directly to a panel member or maybe you want to address to the whole panel. We've got uh, a fantastic panel, I'm sure you'll agree, in terms of their breadth of experience uh, and their uh, approach to and their kind of perspective on the world. Uh, I, I'm going to ask my first uh, question to Tamara Winnikoff. Uh, Tamara is, the national, um, is, is uh, associated with the National Association of Visual Arts. And I wanted to begin, Tamara, and I'll, in I'll uh, introduce uh, people as we go through tonight. And I wanted to begin, Tamara, by um, asking you what, are, what action arts educators, policy make makers and other organisations can take around some of the issues that are arising around national curriculum at the moment, in your view? Okay, well, <clears throat> what I prepared to share with you was a bit of a history of what has been happening, what people like the National Association for the Visual Arts, which is a peak body for the visual arts uh, around the uh, a national peak body, what we've been doing and what we've been doing in conjunction with our colleagues 
But of course, in doing these things, um, we don't do it alone. We do it very much in collaboration with all of our constituents or those constituents who've been motivated to take action. And of course, art education is something that, arts education is something that has is a real passion for most people who are involved in the arts and, and the struggle to try to claim the ground for why it's necessary and important to have, for every child, to have an arts education. So I'm just going to qu speed quickly over the last 12 years of activity because it's been, as long as I've been involved in NAVA and it's nearly 20 years now, it's been an ongoing story. You know, the, the whole, the continuing battle for arts education to be understood to be an entitlement of every child. And so for us, um, I suppose it hotted up um, or was, was f fostered by the Australia Council for the Arts, uh, the arts funding body, um, making a commitment to arts education in around 2001 and starting to um, commission research and to hold various kinds of public events, including a fairly major um, conference at which... Um, they invited Ken Livingstone from the UK to speak, and he was, in fact, an extremely inspiring speaker and had had years of lobbying to try to do exactly what we're trying to do here, to get um, arts education to be an entitlement of every child at school. At that stage, around 2003, our organisation formed the National um, Visual Education Roundtable, which, which had as representatives people from every um, sector of, um, uh, of school. It involved school principals and teachers and parents' associations and research institutions galleries, peak bodies, and so on. So it was a very comprehensive group, and for several years, we facilitated the um, advocacy work of that organisation. I suppose the, um, the important um, first achievement of that group was to persuade a coalition government to give a quarter of a million dollars to, underst to undertake in starting in 2005, the National Review of Visual Education. And um, it was similar to uh, a similar sort of work was done for the music sector. And I guess what it revealed was a whole lot of um, sad truths about how little arts education occupied um, the minds of, or, or how little space arts ed education occupied in the curriculum of many schools. And so I'm just trying to find what... Uh, what it said, um, it made four key recommendations um, the, in the report that was called First We See, the National Review of Visual Education, which is still available online so you can have a look at it. But it pinpointed the importance of understanding what it called visuacy. Unfortunately, that, well, maybe fortunately, that term was never gained currency, but it was trying to position visual... Um, Fluency as a similar sort of uh, uh, language to literacy and, and numeracy and having the same status. So it recommended that visuacy, the ability to create, process and critique visual phenomena, should become a core skill area for all Australian school students, that appropriate pre-service training and ongoing professional learning opportunities should be instituted for visual arts education specialist secondary teachers and generalist primary teachers, 
The potential should be explored of partnerships between schools and appropriate external organisations like galleries to contribute to visual education and a national research agenda should be developed along with an implementation plan. And those key things are still um, potent today. This was recommendations made in 2008 and here we are six years later still feeling that those things need to be addressed. Um, meanwhile, we've been lobbying continuously, lobbying um, uh, both federal and state ministers of the arts and education. And at the point where um, there was a commitment by Labor to uh, introduce a national school curriculum, we became very active in trying to ensure that the arts would be a mandated part of that national curriculum. It wasn't included in phase one, hardly surprisingly, although one should never accept that. It would be wonderful if it wasn't surprising, but we were successful in, in ensuring that it was going to be part of phase two. And then a whole lot of, a great frenzy of activity followed, um, both from our point of view and the people that we were working with to continue to lobby, to not just have it there, but to ensure that it was um, of high quality. And we really had to um, struggle with ourselves to come to a kind of rapprochement over um, who had the right to be preeminent in arts education, because Traditionally, music and visual arts have had the, um, the hold the, the core central position, but we agreed with our colleagues in other um, art forms that it should there should be an equal entitlement to the other three art forms: to theatre, dance, or drama, dance, and media arts. And so we've lobbied collaboratively. We formed a body called the National Advocates for Arts Education and together we've been lobbying for that minimum entitlement to be absolutely core to the national curriculum. Um, meanwhile, there have been important statements made by, um, uh, by politicians, particularly, I suppose, useful was the Melbourne Declaration on Education Goals for Young Australians, which was made in 2008, and it did set the direction for... or it was intended to set the direction for the following 10 years. And so that declaration did include a, um, a statement about the importance and centrality of, um, of arts education. Then in 2009, um, the then Arts Minister Peter Garrett announced that the arts would definitely be included in phase two. And um, from then on, work uh, began. The government body, ACARA, um, then went into action and produced a series of, took a series of steps of consultation, producing documentation, a shape paper first, and then the work on the national curriculum itself. And it was a quite exhaustive process over four years of intensive work, which had extensive input from teachers, from um, professional organisations like ours and um, uh, from academics. And finally, um, the National Curriculum was uh, signed off. The National Curriculum for the Arts was signed off and endorsed by the State and Territory Education Ministers in July 2013. So just when you thought it was safe, there was a change of government. And as we all know, Christopher Pine has um, commissioned a review of the national curriculum and the recommendations were made on Sunday, 
great day for putting out a policy document, October the 12th. And that document was um, a nasty shock for the arts because just at the point where we thought it was all done and dusted, all the arguments had been had, all the responses had been um, developed, everybody had, to a point, agreed. It had been signed off by all the state uh, states, um, with the exception of WA, who still held out for a couple of... Uh, changes to be made, but they had actually signed off in principle. Just at that point, a whole lot of really damaging recommendations, in my view, and shared with my colleagues, um, those recommendations were made, which essentially, once again, cut back the amount of time and energy and, and quality that was going to be invested in a curriculum for the arts, and even recommended that only we should only concentrate again on visual, uh, sorry, visual arts and music, and the other three areas could just be integrated into other areas of the curriculum. So um, where are we now? Um, the National Advocates for Arts Education have um, um, become very public and active again. We've had meetings in Canberra with the Education Department and advisors to the Education Minister and the Arts Minister, and we're currently meeting with the Education Ministers in every state and territory ahead of their meeting in December to discuss their response to the recommendations of the review. I must say, having read the review, I think it must, the people who wrote it couldn't have possibly read the curriculum because some of the things, or they may have, may have cursorily, cursorily read it, but it seems so um, cosmetic, their understanding is so cosmetic that you, it's hard to take seriously what they're saying. However, as we know, um, it would probably suit the minister because the argument has been made that what we're faced with is the crowded curriculum and what would be the first victim of the crowded curriculum? The arts. Interestingly, there have been some very fascinating statistics um, which have shown that what's proposed is that the arts... Well, the arts has already been cut back since the original arts curriculum by about half, and what we've seen is the expansion in the social sciences and humanities to double what they had previously. So if we're going to make the case for needing to respond to the crowded curriculum, perhaps we should be, show, we should be focusing in the areas where that pressure has been exerted and not on the arts, which has already suffered um, cuts to about half of what it was. So maybe in mm. the discussion I can then talk about what you can do and um, mm. we can have a discussion about that. Okay. Thanks, Tamara. Now, Andrea Connell, who's uh, principal of uh, Sydney Girls High School, I mean, the crowded curriculum must be an issue for you on a day-to-day -day basis. Why, why does it not make sense to make space for things that might be considered higher priorities by cutting the arts, in your view? Look, the idea of the crowded curriculum has been around for a very long time now. Mm. And uh, I have to say that in New South Wales, um, we've managed the balance, I think, fairly well across the notion of key learning areas. We've got eight key learning areas, and most people in this room would be aware of that. And uh, the arts, English, math, science, HISI, LOAT, PDHP and TAS, they, they, they work well. And to uh, say that there needs to be, you know, lopped limbs off the body is to, I think, run counter to, to, to the way I think we have managed curriculum in, in this state very well. 
we've, we've won the battle here. Um, in the late 80s and early 90s, we were back in the, in the time when arts was, uh, the centrality of arts was actually about visual arts and music, two things which I value highly, two disciplines. But we had been, you know, Robin would know and others here in the audience, that we had been teaching drama, I mean, that is my teaching background along with English, um, in, in the junior school and in the primary schools very effectively for a long time um, as, a, as a teaching tool and as a discipline in its own right for a lot of uh, kids and, and getting good results. And the board, as it was not named then in the 80s, but came to be called the Board of Studies in the 1990s, was led by a lot of enlightened people that mm. said these things matter. And, and dance and drama were then, from 1990 onwards, part of the curriculum, uh, of the arts curriculum that was seen as central experiences for young people in the effective domains. Mm. And uh, I don't see at all that there's some weakened, soft option kind of notion in the arts as a KLA compared to anything else. They, they have a central place in that they do different things to other subjects. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you really want to look at the development of an adolescent, and of course I'm talking specifically because I'm working in secondary education, and, and the whole range of um, developmental aspects of a young person, the arts are, are very important in doing that in terms of... and the mentioned, thank you, of the Melbourne Declaration in 2008, talks about creating um, or, or shaping confident and creative young people. Mm -hmm. And uh, the sense, I'll just read from this, creative and confident individuals have a sense of self-worth, self-awareness and personal identity that enables them to manage their emotional and their mental well-being. And for those of us in, involved in, in educating young people and adolescents, this idea of well-being and, uh, you know, the whole person and the sense of self-expression, identity, understanding others, understanding self. This is where the arts has its place. So uh, in a school like mine, um, the arts is very, very important in, in balance and in um, self-expression, uh, interactions, understanding the world around them, understanding others. And a lot of our girls in, in a selective high school um, pursue arts education right through to stage six and do very, very well. And, of course, Francois Gagné, you know, with his models of, of giftedness and talent, two of the key domains in his um, processing are creative and social domains. And he talks about originality and imagination, uh, social ease, eloquence, in interaction. And these, are these figure very highly in what he sees as the, the kinds of intelligences that are important. So they are all important. Nobody is saying literacy is not important, mathematics, science, etc., in the humanities, but the arts have their place. Mm. Tom Alaganaris, who's president of the Board of Studies, teacher and educational standards. I've got to stop myself saying Board of Studies. I've managed it. Um, I'm just wondering what, what your uh, kind of reflections on this argument are. I mean, Andrea's spoken really clearly about how the board has had a really rich tradition of balancing these issues. Do you see this new review as a challenge to that balance or do you think that it's still, you, there's still an ability to kind of continue with that tradition? Uh, thanks, Michael. I should mention in the interest of openness that I'm also a board member of um, ACARA. Um, so I've had a lot to do with the development of the Australian curriculum as well as uh, running the Board of Studies Teaching and Educational Standards. Um, yeah, I think there's not a lot of clarity that um, uh, in New South Wales what becomes the mandated curriculum 
is actually, can only be by legislation what the Board of Studies recommends to the Minister. By legislation, the Minister can't actually simply accept another curriculum, can't actually endorse um, the curriculum that ACARA develops and other Ministers endorse. Uh, when it's endorsed by the New South Wales Minister, it's an in-principle endorsement that the Board of Studies will then consider it. If the Minister in New South Wales um, uh, doesn't agree with the advice of the Board, um, the only thing he or she can do is make that disagreement public within 14 days. Um, he can't change it, he or she can't change it or redirect it. So the status of the curriculum is a peculiar and particular thing in New South Wales. And so when English, Math, Science and History were developed, um, as part of the uh, Australian curriculum, they were reformed into um, syllabuses in New South Wales that responded to uh, the, the views of teachers and parents and students as best as we ac could ascertain those through a particular process. That is and will be the case with regard to whatever happens with the arts curriculum whether it be the arts curriculum as developed and approved in principle by ministers by ACARA or any subsequent changes that might emerge over time, and I'll come to that issue in a moment. It will go through the uh, board's processes. Board inspectors uh, will, will uh, research uh, um, uh, practice, best practice, etc., and then go through a consultation process. Now, in all of that, I think this is a key issue with regard to allocation of time. In all of that, as it stands, New South Wales has no intention of, at the moment, it's always a live issue, curriculum is always live, um, no intention of changing the hourly allocations to the arts. Now, um, I'll gladly pause for, <laughs> for applause. I've never been so popular since this uh, process began. <laughs> um, now we didn't, we, we, and, and, and we did not, and while I say it's a live issue, it was a live issue for English, Math, Science and History, and we didn't change the allocation hours for those either, yeah. uh, because a case wasn't made. Um, and and we, we asked, we made the point that we don't, uh, we're not against uh, reconsidering this issue, we want an educational argument to be made. Now, with regard to the review of the Australian uh, curriculum, there's a couple of models presented in that model with hourly allocations and changes suggested. I don't, I, 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 I don't think it's clear, and perhaps it wasn't even to the reviewers, I'm not sure, that the allocation of time is necessarily a, a state issue and a school issue. What reviewers might do and what curriculum does is write the curriculum to a certain number of hours. It has to be written to a certain number of hours. And maybe the reviewers are saying, look, this is what we think is a priority to write the curriculum to. It is a separate issue then whether that will translate in the syllabuses in this state at least to what will be proposed as formal curriculum. That's not the case in other jurisdictions where a lot of small states are just taking what is the national curriculum and implementing it the way it is. It's quite uh, uh, complex variations from state to state. I want to add this to that sort of formal uh, position and that is that our concern in New South Wales is really that um, the development of the Australian curriculum and the response to it is a lost opportunity to address a couple of issues. One is um, uh, a crowded curriculum in primary in particular, which, as Andrea says, well predates Australian curriculum and goes to our conception of primary schooling really more than anything else. And it's an opportunity to, for us to have brought on that discussion with regard to that discussion, 
we do, as Andrea has, uh, has said, we have to escape this idea of competing learning priorities. I mean, really, the school day is really extremely elastic. It should not be considered in sort of compartments of time that, uh, that um, uh, like uh, Lego blocks that you distribute. It's, it's actually elastic, but more to the point, we have to understand that uh, there are issues that are fundamental to further learning and there are issues that are fundamental for, for people and schooling as a whole to fulfil its potential. And, and the arts fit both of those, possibly particularly the second, but, but, but fit both of those. The, the, the other point I want to make, just, just quickly if I may, though it doesn't go to your question directly, is that we are in a, 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 a turning point in terms of what education means uh, for Australia. And we feel the Australian curriculum really hasn't gone to this issue and, and a lot of our resources have gone into dealing with the Australian curriculum where they might have gone to these issues such as this. And that is our space in the world in terms of our social uh, and economic development will be determined by our capacity to uh, exploit the potential of our people for one of another term much more completely than we have. And that has broadly two dimensions, assuring that all individuals achieve the highest possible education and we don't accept that there's large slabs of people that just don't get a, a reasonable education but also that people are able to, to, to integrate and, and fulfil their learning potential in creative ways. If we want to be attractive uh, um, uh, popular places to live that uh, attract, attract inventive and, and, and creative uh, people our schooling, by the end of schooling people have to have a sense of that and in my view, uh, the arts is absolutely crucial to that. And if you want to develop that sort of schooling system, that's where we have to be. Uh, we have to spend a lot less time arguing about sort of minimal allocations and, and mechanical problems. We have to shift our attention to that quite uh, quickly. Uh, and with a, a bit of luck, um, uh, post uh, the Ministerial Council meeting that's been referred to in December, we'll be able to put our attention and resources to that uh, sort of thinking. Okay, thanks, Tom. Professor Julianne Schultz, Tom talked about our place in the world, and I'm wondering, do you think arts have a place in the 21st century curriculum? Oh, <laughs> unequivocally. Yeah. Um, and I think Tom set that up very well because what we're looking at is a, is a sort of global change in terms of the sort of economic um, and interrelations that uh, social and economic relations that, that we'll be engaged with. And I think that all the evidence is pointing to the need to um, ensure that the, uh, that, that the population is as well equipped as possible to, to engage in what will be a very different sort of world environment. And it's one in which this sort of, this, what I define as a sort of cultural sector is really going to be central. Um, so that means that rather than operating as I think we in Australia have for a long time that somehow or other this cultural stuff just happens, that you've actually got to pay it serious attention and think about how the capacity for people to engage in this space to the fullest of their potential um, can be realised. And in a way, I mean, we've seen a number of examples where this has come under sort of question 
often or has not been advocated as well as it might be in the sort of public domain. Um, and this arts education discussion seems to me really to go to the heart of it. So, I mean, what I've tried to do is to think back as to what the purposes of a proper arts education might be. I mean, how do you see that playing out? And we've, you know, <coughs> heard already tonight examples of, of, of what that means in a, in a general sense in terms of the sort of both the create ex exercise of creativity and discipline. But it seems to me that there are sort of four, four key areas. The first is that by providing people with an arts education from when they are quite young is that pathways for people who want to either either pursue that professionally or as I think the figures from the Australia Council are now showing, you know, sort of 80% of Australians engage in creative, creative activities whether professionally or at a serious level in their own lives. So the skills that you need to do that are something that you need to be factoring in from, from when you're quite young. So there's, there's that sort of that skill and capacity. The second is that if you're living in a society which is in a world which is shaped by sort of cultural norms and mores, having well-informed audiences and people who can... Who can um, engage with it, not necessarily as a performer or as an artist, but, but as an informed audience. That adds enormously to the richness and the capacity. So that's, that's, that's a part of a sort of a, a, a capacity building which is really important. The next two areas I think are really, really significant and, and I don't know that the advocacy in a general sense is as, as widely accepted as it might be. The first is that by, the, I mean I think internationally the evidence points absolutely convincingly that, that children who engage in art making and art activities, cultural activities more generally, that when that's done well, it has an impact on their other, on their other performance in, in, in more traditional academic areas. And so that's something that you'd want to see, as Tom says, you know, to, to ensure that the, that the population is as well equipped as possible to engage in the future. So that multiplier effect of an arts education is really important. But then the other is the sort of instrumental value. And, and again, the international, I know the research you've done here in Sydney, but the national research especially is absolutely compelling in this space. You know, that kids with low SES backgrounds who've been involved in arts activities, mm. art making activities, I mean, you see a, almost a doubling of their, their outcomes, whether it's in terms of their capacity to complete school, to get to, to university, to have, a, have ongoing employment. I mean, the figures are extraordinary. Um, and I just think that 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 instrumental value is just something that we really need to pay more attention to. So my sort of proposition, in a sense, is that if we're going to win the argument, um, it's all very well to say it and we can demonstrate with story and, and, and other means, but it would be very useful to have really strong data. Um, so I'd really like to see the national child... There's a longitudinal study of childhood that the Institute of Family Studies has been doing for a very long time, mm. and they tend to respond to political things. I mean, the, this last year they looked, did a lot of stuff on... Um, absence of fathers and diet, diet and fat and you know the, the fashion political areas of the day seems to me that we've got a good mechanism in that in that study to actually start looking at what a solid arts education means in terms of outcomes um, for for young people in Australia over time and I have no doubt that you know well I, I do have a doubt I mean it's something that would need to be tested but I have every expectation that that would demonstrate results similar to what we've seen elsewhere in the world I think that that then becomes a much better you know another another argument in the way to make in the political domain if we can see that these impacts are demonstrable 
I think that's a really useful thing to do. So I'm, I would really like to see there being pressure put on the Institute of Family Studies and that longitudinal study of childhood to see these arts questions built into it. I think at the moment, when I last looked at this, the nearest we got to an arts question in there was, do, does your mother read to you and how much television do you watch? You know, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, Professor Robin Ewing, the, you've, you've heard Julianne talk about the research, and we know that the research is quite compelling across the arts. So why are, are the arts the first to... I mean, in terms of the review, there were a lot of things that were contentious, but the, the hardest cut seemed to go into the arts. Why is that when the research is there? Well, perhaps we've... I've lost this again. <laughs> perhaps we've spent too long talking to ourselves... Um, perhaps, <laughs> thank you. Speaking the mind. Perhaps um, we haven't really been successful in convincing the Australian population, um, policymakers, bureaucrats, and perhaps some um, generalist teachers um, of how important the arts are to learning. I think. Um, we have to take responsibility as educators to make sure that the research is known more generally. And, and I know that it is in our rhetoric, it's in our Melbourne Declaration, it's, it's in lots of our documents. Mm. But there is still the perception out there, sadly, that the arts are for the more cultural um, subset. They don't, they don't necessarily understand that, it, that the arts are for everyone. <coughs> And that alongside the study of the different art forms, the different knowledges, there is that incredible importance of, of being immersed in arts-rich experiences that allow us to play and create and question and provoke each other as well as to, to represent things in a different way and, of course, to represent them aesthetically. Um, I think as well... Um, part of the problem is that in Australia we are fixated on a very reductive and narrow understanding of what literacy is. And so there is no understanding in the recommendation that we won't do arts um, as, a, as core um, foundation to two. We'll, we'll introduce it as core in year three and that, that we will privilege several of the art forms as core and the others will be elective, that in actual fact all of the different art forms, and, and we're only looking at five, um, there, are, there are lots of others as well depending on where you live and what, what um, is culturally appropriate, um, how important they are for literacy, for real, deep literacy, because all of the different art forms, if we accept that they're different ways of making meaning, they're different forms of literacy. Mm. To, so to say, well, we're not, going to, we're not going to crowd the curriculum by having um, the arts mandated in those most important years of life is... is very reductive, and I think going backwards. Young children are born um, wanting to explore the world through the arts. You only have to look at any young child to see that. And for us to take that away in, in early childhood curriculum and in K-2, um, you know, I think would be really destructive. But 
But you see, I, don't, I just don't think that people really get it. They, they pay lip service to it, but they don't understand how important it is. And can I also say here that I'm including the literary arts in this discussion. I think the siloing of different um, key learning areas is, is again a retrograde step. And Tom, you know, that it's building on your comment that really we don't learn in that way. We learn in, um, by integrating things in really meaningful ways, not siloing everything. And so one of my great concerns as well is that things like the, the general capabilities, like creative and critical thinking, um, are also being attacked in the recommendations because they don't, uh, there's, there seems to be a misunderstanding um, that they're adding more crowding to the curriculum when in fact they're meant to be lenses through which we're going to, to plan and, and interpret. So um, I think perhaps some of it is, is partly our fault because we haven't found a way to get that message much more broadly out there and understood in a much more um, extensive way. And, but also I think um, we have to really help people understand that, as Julianne says, we are um, very much, um, the arts are very much part of who we are as human beings. If we get that right, the whole of our life, then we will take care of our effective um, and our social and emotional well-being. And then, of course, it's no surprise that we are academically more um, competent and, and as well that we are better human beings. We, the, the research is there as well about the community service and all of those other things. So um, it is an argument about business as well. Uh, it's a, a really important argument that we need to make much better. Thanks, Robin. So, so Rob Carlton, when you're not playing Kerry Packer, you're often <laughs> working with uh, business people in terms of uh, in in kind of work with kind of corporates and, and that kind of world. What, as a kind of an outside eye to this, so uh, someone who's not in arts in the arts education world, what do you make of this argument? What what, what occurs to you? What kind of observations do you have about it? Um, first of all, thanks for everyone for turning up. Thanks for inviting me. I do appreciate it. Um, I, don't, I, I think the thing that's running through it for me is this notion of vulnerability. Um, and, and arts to me seems to be the one form in which we can explore and enjoy our vulnerability. Um, and to me, that is what gives um, certainty purpose. So I wanted to tell. I, I wanted to talk around a couple of things because I do see a, a couple of things in the corporate space that worry me desperately, um, and I think a, a, a few things. You, I just like to introduce them to, to the topic. Um, I also say that obviously all of what I'll say is um, just observed things um, and certainly not backed up with any kind of academic testing, so I certainly defer to the experts in the room around that. First of all, I just want to communicate what a passionate believer I am in story and sharing our stories in all forms. Um, it, I believe it has an absolutely profound effect on our existence on, and how we live. Um, it makes the world a much less lonely place. Uh, two years ago, I was invited out to Bingara, northwest New South Wales. It's about 100 kilometres sort of west of... Inverell, north of him, it's a hell of a long way, 
right? And there's not much going on out there but farming. Except for the Bingarat Northwest Film Festival, yeah? And I was invited out there to be a judge in the film festival and to run a workshop. Um, it was set up by an amazing woman who ran the TAFE course um, and in, in that region and the woman that ra ran Bingra. In the lead up to it, I got a phone call saying, Rob, there's a young boy um, that has put forward a, a film. He's pixelated his face. He's drowned out his voice. He lives in Bingara, northwest New South Wales. He's 15, and he's going through a transgender crisis. He believes he's a woman trapped in a man's body. He's told one person, a girl that he goes to high school with. He has not told his community. He's a very anxious young man. He's made this film. He probably won't turn up. I just need you to know that some of the background. No problems. I've had a liberal arts education. I can handle that. Um, so I turn up to Bingara and we go, and we, this movie is played. And, and, and again, look, this, it's, it's, a, it's a tiny little festival and it's just the community that's there. And this thing is played and people are really struck by it. And then when they go to announce the awards, this particular film didn't win an award, but each person that got up that accepted awards said, to whoever made that film, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I, that's a new thing to me. I didn't even know that existed. You know, I, I understood this and that, but that was new. Thank you. That really moved me. A number of people said it. It was really warmly received. In the drinks afterwards, I was standing there, and I get this tap on the shoulder, and I turn around, and there's this tiny little slip of a kid. And he looks at me, and he looks up, and he goes, that was me. That's me. And I, I gave him a hug, and I said, mate, good on you. Good on you. I said, are you coming to the workshops tomorrow? He said, I don't know. But he did, he did come to the workshops. And we were discussing and we were doing. And as I was watching these dancers too this morning, it's the doing of the thing. Mm. This time spent doing. Mm. And we were doing things and we were practically hanging out with this young kid. And over the course of that weekend, that young boy slowly let people know that was my story. And at the end of the weekend, people in Bingara knew that there was a young boy facing a crisis that could well be life-ending if he doesn't figure it out and reach out to his community. And I thank those ladies in Bingara for putting that thing together because I fear for that boy had he not had that step. And obviously he's got a huge way to go, but that's one reason, one salient reason why I'm a passionate believer in the arts and the need to tell our stories. Now, fast forward that into the modern corporate environment. Yeah, you're right, Michael. I spend a lot of time in corporates, right? And I want this discussion, I guess, we talked about one of the precepts. We start very young, then we've got an opportunity to be professional artists. To be perfectly honest, I don't care about the top end of town. People that are amazing, people that are going to be great, people that are going to be doing great shit, let them go. They're going to find their way, right? And then you've got people at the bottom, they're all going to, they're, they're going to fall about and fuck about, and they're going to fuck their own lives up, right? That's true. It's true, it's ugly, but this is the world we live in, right? I'm looking at the 90% of people that can go either way depending on the kind of leadership. This is the group that we've got to know. So when I'm emceeing a conference, I know that largely 10% will be brilliant, 10% won't be working there next year, and it's the 80% in the middle we've got to grab. That's the key. 
major problem that I see in corporations today. And again, we're not talking about the high flyers, the major thinkers, the great thought leaders. We're talking about the honest, hardworking people that turn up to work every day to feed their families. The problem is never the information. The problem is never whether they're an expert at their job, whether they can crunch the numbers. They can crunch the numbers. They can read the books. The problem in every single corporation I've ever come in is the communication of the idea. The communication of the idea. And the fundamental difference I see between a conversation between my artistic friends, my collaborators, my creative friends, and the people in the corporate world is that when the answer isn't known, my creatives find joy. When the answer needs to be looked for and and ferreted out, and there's this feeling of terror that accompanies us, that accompanies us when we're feeling at sea, we're feeling vulnerable, my creative friends light up and we get a sense of joy and a sense of let's find each other's eyes, we're in this shit together. Right? And in the corporate world where there is a sense of, I'm right, I know this, I'm the expert, I've got the thing, we, we, we've got our little, as my father calls them, the dung heaps, and we've got our sectors, and it's out, right? If we don't know what the answer is, people sit on their ideas because it's terrifying to be vulnerable. It's terrifying to say, you know what, I don't know. And the, trust me, man, the big ideas that we've got to solve coming up, it's not going to be one mind. It's not going to be an Einstein. Mm. And there have been research done on this stuff. It's about groups of people. And it comes down to simple moments where often big, strong men, oh, I know this and that, are terrified to say, what if? With just a half thought. And let's build on that half thought. That's the main difference I see. And why are people so terrified in this space? I'll tell you, because the schoolyard is fucking terrifying. It's, I was talking to my 10-year-old boy, right? I've got twins, and one's at the state debating championships at the moment, so I've got some one-on-one time with one of them, and it's just great. And I invited him up, and I hope this doesn't sound too hokey, but I said to him, but it, it really struck me to the quick, because one of the main concerns I've got with this review is non-compulsory stuff until third, third class. Mm-hmm. I said to my son, and he wasn't prepped. I didn't say, look, this is what I reckon. I said, hey, dude, what's the difference between the kindergarten kids? Uh, oh, preface, I'm a proud father, and my son is a genius. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I prefaced it with, Jimmy, what's the difference between a kindergarten kid and someone in third class? He said, oh, kindergarten kids are more naive. They like more. So what do you mean? He said, they like stuff. You know, have a dance, they like that. Do this, they like that. Show them a butterfly. Oh, I like that. <laughs> right? Now, this is going to offend some people. Then what happens when they're in year three? That's gay. Trust me, he knows, he, that's not what he's saying, but that's, this is the language of the schoolyard. Right? And yes, I have told him, and he does rebut that around homophobia. We've got that conversation covered. But <laughs> he says, literally... And it's third class, because the third classes are now getting involved with the sixth classes. Whoa, dancing? That's gay. My kid's a chess player. Gay. They're good at maths. They like maths. You're weird. Gay? Weird. You're gay. That's why 
people are terrified. Because the schoolyard, as soon as there's something confronting, as soon as there's something difficult, as soon as it's not part of the mainstream, not part of the dominant paradigm, kids gang the fuck up and they go hard. And so when I come to play someone like Kerry Packer, I believe one of the great bullies of our age, what do I look for? I look for the school kid. That's how I got him. I look for the, the, the sweet little school kid that was desperate to be heard, but frightened as hell of everyone around him. And so the one thing that I've really, really liked to impart is by third class, it's too late. Mm. Oh, good point. We need... We need for our little children to be in a space where they can wonder aloud, where they can dance and fall over, where they can sing out a tune, where they can say, what if? And embrace that vulnerability and not have society stand around them going, you're feeling vulnerable? Fucking you're gay, mate. That's not what we want. We want an environment that says, yeah, we want to know how to add up. We want to know how to spell. And together, we want to know how to come up with new shit because right now, the world needs new things. Thanks, Rob. Power of story right there. We're going to uh, get the house lights up and take some questions right now. There's two microphones uh, in each aisle. Uh, don't, um, don't injure yourselves getting to them. Uh, wait till the house lights come up. Uh, but if you want to form a queue behind e- either microphone, either that or I'll ask inane questions for the next hour. Um, so if you've got a question, please make your way to the microphone. I'm going to uh, just throw back to Tamara. If, if we are concerned about... Um, that that recommendation around K2 arts kind of not becoming mandatory uh, and being kind of available, what what can teachers, what can parents, what can any of us do to respond to that um, threat? Well, I think that um, both individually and collectively we have to say something, and most people don't. You know, most people are annoyed by something but they don't do anything. And if you don't want to do it by yourself, then find the advocacy group who can um, help you to be articulate about the things that you care about. But there's nothing like a a written letter to make a, a politician take notice. Not an email, an actual written letter. Because what politicians do is they, you know, they're interested in votes, something about that. And each time they see a letter, they multiply it by 100. They see that it stands for the opinion of 100 people. Because if you've been sufficiently motivated to go to the extent of actually doing something, it means that probably a lot of your mates feel the same way as you do. So I think that um, just take some action. You know, don't just sit there is the thing to do. And I guess, you know, it sounds complicated because you, you feel that you need to have the arguments and you have to refer to the research and you have to give substance to what you're articulating. But there's a lot of that material around and available that you can draw on. And, for example, our you know, websites like ours have a simple argument on them and you mm. can draw from those and compose your own letter. But I think you just have to go and try to influence key decision makers because 
you know, all the research in the world is not going to convince any, anyone if it's just sitting there. It has to be used. And we actually have to make our own views felt uh, substantially by people who are going to be making those decisions. And Christopher Pine, however much it may eventually be the decision of the Board of Studies, Christopher Pine is setting the agenda. He's actually the platform on which this kind of arts bashing is starting to happen again. And so he needs to hear that we care about that and we, that we think that that's a, a, a retrograde step, that it's actually not accepting the necessity for us to embrace the 21st century. And that, you know, there are things that our children need in order, as, as we've all been saying, you know, they need to be um, assisted to be creative, articulate, um, nimble, um, and be able to be opportunistic, to be able to take up opportunities because the certainties of the world aren't there anymore. Mm. You know, get, they need to be able to adapt to a very fast-changing world. And I think the point that somebody made, uh, I think it was you, Robin, about the fact that there are different forms of, mm. um, of literacy in the 21st century really needs to be... Um, needs to be imprinted on or made revealed to people who are making these decisions because, you know, if you think about... Well, it's, it's part of the argument that we made initially to the politicians in order to unlock that money for, the, um, for that visual, um, visual education research because we said, look, all of us are using a mobile phone we're taking photographs, we're sending them to people. We are communicating visually in every aspect of our communication now. And yet we're doing that with appalling ignorance. You know, we're not, we're not given the tools to use that communication mechanism effectively. We're just doing it, you know, as a, um, because the tool is there. Hmm. But, you know, for kids to be potent in the 21st century, they have to be able to be articulate in a lot of different mediums. Sorry, I've strayed away from the topic. No, no, that's okay. So I guess the point is that we need to be able to make evident to people who are making the decisions and setting the agenda for discussion the fact that they're acting in ignorance and taking us backwards instead of forwards and we don't, you know, we won't tolerate it. Thanks, Tamara. Uh, I think we've got a questioner over there. If you'd just like to identify yourself and uh, um, say who you're directing your question to. Uh, my name's Jennifer. I'm an MTeach student from Sydney Uni. That's Masters of Teaching. Um, primary. I just wondered, I don't, uh, probably Bostez is the best um, person to answer, but why are the KLAs separate? I mean, as a, I'm trained to be a primary school teacher, why, why is the syllabus, what is the history of why all the subject areas are separate? Like, I'm going to be teaching them integrated every day in every lesson that I do, so w why is it set out? I mean, Robin raised the idea of things like critical thinking, um, which is probably my main motivator for changing my career from corporate to become a teacher. So why is it that we have these seven areas? What's the history of that? Great. 
Robin, you look um, like you might yep. want to. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's a big question. Tom's right. The the real mm. curric the word curriculum is really everything that happens. We've been calling it a national curriculum, but it's really only the intended or the formal or whatever. Um, but actually, I think it's because we um, certainly feel afraid of working more holistically. I think actually we've gone backwards um, or perhaps stayed in a very um, out of date and industrialised um, way of thinking about um, different subjects and different knowledges. Uh, and I think um, it would have been much better if we'd been a little bit braver and started to think more broadly about how we really learn and, and we don't learn in those discrete separate silos. So. Um, there's also a lot of research that that kind of um, what Raywin Connell called the competitive academic curriculums, dividing knowledge up in that way, actually only privileges a very small number of our students. It's not meeting the needs of so many students in terms of um, their understanding of the world. Mm. So I think perhaps the question is not why, because as Tom said, we've got here for, from you know, a lot of different processes, but the question is actually, um, why are we staying with something that is outdated? And what are we going to do about trying to communicate how much more important it is to think um, in, a, in a much more holistic way about things? I think the, the other thing too is that, that um, we also have this tendency to think about going back to the basics and, you know, uh, the three R's or, or whatever we want to say. There's this kind of myth that once upon a time we had this wonderful golden age where everybody was learning really well and there were no problems. And if we return to this golden age, we'll be okay. Well, that's a, uh, that's a really ridiculous myth. You know, the people that weren't able to cope with the intended curriculum when I went to school too long ago, they left. They didn't stay. 
and we've got a whole range of kids at school who are not achieving beyond, you know, there's a, a time between year four and year nine where they're not developing um, their skills. They're bored, they're, they're demotivated, they're not learning and growing with the potential that they showed as young children. And I think part of that is because we're not really addressing their needs in a meaningful way. So I think we really do, as a country, need to think about um, what we should be doing um, if we are serious about everybody having the basics. And the basics have got to include the arts and creativity, not just this kind of narrow, reductive literacy and numeracy. Thanks, Robin. Gentlemen. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, say, firstly, to, to Tom, who's a fellow uh, Greek descendant, like myself, uh, George Martin, uh, in ancient Greece, going along to the theatre was a civic duty. Mm. Um, it, it was seen not only as a way of keeping up to date with what was going on in the society and working out issues. Uh, there's a wonderful work catharsis, this mm. emotional mm. outpouring with things that were building up could be worked out um, during the course of the, the evening and then afterwards in the discussion. Um, now that's obviously something we've lost because the arts have been mm. denigrated. I mean, in some ways, Barry Humphrey's great uh, uh, satirical Les Patterson, uh, who was the minister of the arts, has done a lot of damage in some people's minds because they see it as a, uh, a stereotypical parody of a kind of self-serving bureaucrat who's there to go to all the openings and to drink all the free grog, but hasn't really got much of an interest in actually what's going on. Um, but Personally, I see the problem being that there's been, um, uh, the word silos was used by Robert just a second ago, uh, the idea that the arts itself has been put into a silo and separating itself from other areas of human activity, which I think is a huge mistake, because if one sees the creative imagination in all areas of activity, in sport, there's aesthetics in sport, there's aesthetics in people fixing up their car with beautiful paint jobs, they might not see themselves as being artistic, but that's what they are. But they're trained not to think that way because the arts are completely, you know, just for, for Nancy boys and, uh, you know, sort of basket weavers from Balmain and all the rest of it because that's what we're fed and it's been reinforced. So I think personally what we need to do, this is what I think people have to comment on, is to break down the barriers between things like science, sport and the arts to see that there's creative imagination required in all of these and you shouldn't denigrate one or the other. You can actually get value from all of them and, and expand people's mindset see that what the, the yobber down the road is fixing up his uh, new, new paint job has been just as artistic as me writing a new play and it should be appreciated as such and therefore the enmity that's developed can be broken down and people can then expand uh, and, and there won't be this uh, backlash against the arts and the funding uh, backlash that's followed on from it. Okay, thanks. Can I just throw, uh, pick up on a theme and ask Andrea a question? Is it actually the, around siloing, is, is that an issue in schools at the moment in terms of the way cur curriculum's implemented? Um, and is that a, a, a problem for the way you can organise schooling and curriculum? Yeah, I, I think it is. And uh, one of the challenges in schools these days is to do just the kinds of things that you're both referring to, is to be able to see the appreciation of every discipline 
and the appreciation of design, and you're talking about the man painting his car in a beautiful way. Well, I don't see that as art because I can't see ideas being explored in that so much, but I certainly see it as an aesthetic, so that, that's an interesting distinction. But, but in terms of this idea of the parity of subjects, couldn't agree more. I think most enlightened schools and school leaders these days are at great pains to dispel the idea of the hierarchy of subjects that, you know, physics and Latin are at the top and, you know, technology and computing and, and needlework are at the bottom. I mean, th those days, thank goodness, are, are, are far behind us. We listen to, uh, you know, uh, in the TED Talks, etc., Ken Robinson talk about creativity and, um, you know, critical thinking and, and our approach to learning as being something that is far more organic and, you know, engaging with, with endeavour. So I think in that regard, the, the, the enmity between subjects is something that most enlightened schooling um, institutions, educators, teachers are at pains to do away with. And the other point about the curriculum connectedness, that, that's a big challenge for everybody. Uh, in primary schools and in high schools to be able to connect the learning across the disciplines. And a lot of work goes into that by, um, you know, designing projects and big ideas kind of questions in high school. So young, young people are seeing that the learning is not this bit of discrete knowledge that doesn't connect or, you know, do, doesn't, doesn't work into something meaningful. So these are big issues that have been raised by, by both speakers and um, they're challenges for, for all of us in schools. Mm. Di McDonald, star of Q&A. <laughs> yes, we all saw you die. Okay, um, first of all, Michael, thank you for putting some females on the panel as opposed to the review of the national curriculum. Yeah. Um, second of all, you've got here a whole pile of practising teachers who work really hard in arts education to promote and support it. We have written letters to the minister. We have done all the sorts of things that you guys want us to do, how can we as teachers and all of us together, not just drama teachers, but visual arts teachers, dance teachers, how do we get our voices heard? Mm, you know, it's just. fantastic what you guys are doing and what this, this forum tonight, but how do we, knowing what happens in our classrooms, I taught drama this afternoon to three Down syndrome kids mm. who have just come so far this year in what they're doing how they're articulating, how does that information get out? How do, how do people find out about that? All of us here tonight would be really happy to go home and send letters and send emails to Christopher Pine and to anybody, but we just keep getting these blank form letters back. Hmm. What do we do? So I might ask, ask Rob and Julianne for a, a kind of a take on that. I know you mightn't have anything to say about that, Rob, but um, <laughs> I'm just wondering, you know, from, from an outsider's perspective, what cuts through? We'll write a play, you know. Um, <laughs> what did you say? Write a play. You, you know, get your friends together. Uh. Um, I, I will defer. Uh, in terms of social action and things like that, obviously, you know, then I'll just get through all the usual things, start opening Twitter accounts, um, get different noise her noises heard. I mean, the, 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 the sorts of p things that are picking up at the moment, people are looking to Twitter, they're looking to Instagram. Instagram would be a great way of doing it, given that it's about visual arts and things like that. So I would use social media, and that's, a, that's an easy thing to say. In terms of um, gathering passion um, amongst all of your people, um, that's something that um, you would know far better than I, so I'll defer. 
Julian? Um, I, I think that there are some, I mean, I don't know what the magic solution is, but I think that those suggestions are, are terrific. I think that social media engagement is really important. Um, um, one of the, the avenues that I think is sort of interesting to try and explore, and I think it's reasonably open, is the, um, is the organising capacity that's around things like GetUp and, and the sort of mechanisms that they've been using. I mean, GetUp currently has about 780,000 members members. Um, now, they do regular surveys of issues. They have mechanisms for people to start their own surveys and question, you know, their own petitions and so on. Um, and I think that this, this whole space um, is one that that constituency would probably engage around. Um, I mean, they don't do much in the sort of cultural space. They work in, you know, there's a lot of environment, there's a lot of, you know, the, the core big issues that, that we're accustomed to. Um, but I think that that would be an area that would be really worth exploring. Um, the challenge is in a constrained sort of media environment that the old media, you know, is no longer has the pull that it once did. I mean, the politicians still pay more attention to it than it pro probably warrants. Um, but, you know, it is, it is a shrinking medium. So it's a matter, I think, of finding those sort of organised mechanisms that are out in that sort of social media space that can actually give you a chance mm. to aggregate big numbers. Um, sorry, Michael, I did have another thought. Um, thank you for the time to think. Um, <laughs> just, or just thinking of the guilds and things that, um, that this affects in, in many different ways. Um, so the Australian Academy of Cinema, Television and Arts, um, they've been going through a really tough time and only in this last 12 months have they found corporate sponsorship and things like that. These are passionate people um, and they're advocates for Australian stories. Um, they're connected, they've got big noises, they've got Geoffrey Rush, Kate Blanchett, mm. um, Russell Crowe at their head. Look at MIA, the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance. Now these guys are passionate, um, they've got a very long history of um, of advocacy, uh, working very hard and lobbying. Um, the Screen Producers Association, the Australian Writers Guild, the Australian Directors Guild. All of these guys have very, very long history and generally run by uh, business people um, that are then reporting to the art, uh, art people th that are on the board. So again, I guess, um, you know, as I would advise corporations, if you're trying to do anything, you're trying to reach across and have as many voices speaking um, on your behalf as possible. Obviously, they've got their own um, things that they're trying to um, go the whole time, but a bit of quid pro quo, a bit of support here, um, you know, make them aware of this conversation. Do they know that it's going on at the moment? Would one letter from a guild help? Because often with any given argument, you've got to, everyone knows what you're going to say. And I think the reason you're getting blank letters is because you've been unbelievable and you've been saying it and you've been saying it and you've been saying it. So now get them to say it, get them to say it, get them to say it, get them to say it. Surround the fuckers right, and see how it goes from there. Thanks. But could I, could uh, I just... Sorry, Kerry, I should apologise. I'll let Di jump in, in front of you. Um, Kerry, would you like to ask a question? Thank you very much for making this event possible. And it comes after, as Tamara was saying, an extraordinary amount of work that was done on the national curriculum, unfortunately, with the results that uh, came through. I want to just make a couple of comments. I was thinking about this the other morning in regard to the arts. I worry about when the arts are called the arts, because for the uninformed, the arts become the arts. They aren't visual arts or media or drama or dance. They're the arts. They seem to be the same. 
We know they're not the same, but the rhetoric is, especially when it just becomes not even the arts, but arts, it's one thing. And Akara <coughs> was only too happy to that because they were extremely deceptive about the amount of time that was available, whether or not that was made public and so on. There are also other problems. I think, I think the review was right. One of the things that was right was that they talked about the cruel hoax that Akara, uh, rather, that happened in the arts. And the fact that there wasn't time made public, even though it is a state issue, was deeply problematic um, because the arts are different, because <coughs> the arts require time, because the arts are not interchangeable. They should have been considered with that degree of respect, and I don't think they were. In fact, we know from Brian Croke very early on, Akara's view was, given that they were going to be in phase two, they had to be easy. Well, any history would tell us the arts are never easy at any time. They can't be. They're complex. They involve complex sorts of things. And you want the arts to work like that. But I was thinking about the arts as siblings. Siblings need different things at different times. It's a bit like a Christmas card to Bert and Joan and the children. <coughs> you actually forget that the children have names, are different ages, and need different things to survive being the arts, even though there is a lot of industry cred with such a name, can actually be debilitating in the curriculum. But it's damn hard for people to give five names of different subjects. Much easier to call it yarts and just forget about it. So these are just a few comments in response to what's been going on tonight. The issue of the siblings, I think, is really key. Dance is tiny. Dance has been tiny. The 1972 report on the arts clearly claimed dance was tiny, needed to find further, further place in the curriculum. All of these years later, nothing much has changed for dance. What's remained constant is their passion to be included in the curriculum and included well. So I do think the issue of sibling and sibling rivalry is important. My great distress through the discussions about the national curriculum was that visual arts and music time was prepared to be sacrificed for a whole arts approach. What did that mean? That we'd kill something off so something else could exist. In a way, that's what happens with creativity. Many theorists have talked about this. Something always has to be destroyed for something else to live. But it was a very problematic aspect of any discussion because the issue of hours and what this meant at the level of states wasn't engaged with as it needed to be. New South Wales, as Andrew has pointed out, was in quite a different position. But there's no doubt issues of rivalry and the possibility of an enhanced status were very, very real in how the curriculum was played out, particularly when it was performing arts rich in who was decided to be uh, both people at ACARA and uh, also the role of the lead writer and so on. So these are things to just reflect on and think about. Critical thinking and creative thinking, as Robin mentioned, are certainly very key, but if anyone went to Akara's documentation, you wouldn't have a clue what was being talked about. This is the time when real research about those areas needs to take place. Critical thinking and creative thinking are probably the same thing. They're not discreet. But as some of the panel have discussed tonight, that context, that early inculcation into culture is absolutely key to critical and creative thinking. So critical and creative thinking are social. They're not just individual or psychological. 
and that social fabric and how it informs, how mores inform what people do needs to be taken into account with these things. We know the problems that arise when kids push an idea too far that will be morally embarrassing for the high school certificate as we had issues some years ago. Uh, what do you do when kids really want to make a point about something but it pushes too far against current norms? Kids need to be coached with those things. It's very, very difficult to do. The issue of custodians that was talked about right at the beginning, I'm really interested in this as an idea. I wonder who, who, is, who has the voice for visual arts at the moment or who the custodians are that have been talked to, even about an evening like tonight. It's an important point. I wonder too why there isn't representation from dance and so on. These things matter. And finally, Robin's comment about research I think is absolutely key. Uh, whether we can do any more about putting our research out, I'm not quite so sure. We know from ACARA that they were only prepared to look at a limited amount of research, even though people tried desperately for other research to be made public. They didn't want to know because the research didn't align with the agenda that ACARA had for the arts. I think that was deeply problematic, but thank you. Thank you, Kerry. Uh, Tamara, can I ask you to pick up on anything in uh, Kerry's uh, comments that you'd like to respond to? Yeah. Um... I should say, sorry, we'll finish in 10 minutes' time. I'll take one more question for John, from John after this. Sorry. Yeah. I suppose, I suppose the, the point that Kerry raises that, um, that um, for me is a very critical point is, it is all, it's, it's the, the crowded curriculum point again. You know, how, how can we achieve justice for any... Um, area of um, scholarship or, or experience in, in what is a very limited day for, for children. And I guess as a, an advocate for the visual arts, I'd like to see their whole day spent on visual arts because I think it's just such a fantastic experience and it's so liberating and so purposeful. But I think that we, we, we're faced with the, with the challenge of trying to prepare children for an increasingly complex world. And it's almost, I mean, I'm not a curriculum specialist, so I can't um, comment uh, definitively on what I think should happen. But what I, one thing that occurred to me in some of the comments that other people have been making is that I think we, ideally, what we need is to help kids have deep expertise in each of the areas that's going to equip them for life but to see the cross you know the cross fertilization across all of those areas so that children don't just get a kind of superficial smattering of everything without in, and then not be expected to have skill in anything uh, nor should they just have deep exposure in one area, like you know um, English and maths, and no um, experience of every, anything else. And I guess for those who are writing curriculum and are trying to deal with this challenge, that to me seems a really difficult question. How can you ensure oh, that you get the depth and the, and the sequential development mm. in any field and you see it applied, as, as I could imagine the visual arts, you know, it would be an ideal, that it's applied everywhere. It doesn't just sit in visual arts. It's a skill and a way of thinking and a, a problem-solving exercise and an articulation that can be applied in any area of the curriculum. Mm. So I, I, see, I see the challenge. I'm not the expert to say how to solve it. Mm. 
Okay. John. I'm John Montgomery. I'm uh, Director of Teaching and Learning at William Clark College and an ex-supervisor of Buckingford Drama HSC. Um, I think just picking up on the conversation and particularly uh, listening to Kerry's point about sibling rivalry between the art forms, um, my, my mind goes to thinking about uh, the we don't want to end up with an Orwellian approach to the arts where some arts are more equal than others and, yeah. <laughs> and, and have this kind of... Uh, war between the arts for our grab of space and time in the curriculum. Um, what I, I feel that we need to do is to, to reclaim the ground of the importance of the arts for all students, to re-engage with the whole idea of kindergarten as a garden for children to play and discover and learn and have a creative space for them to be able to enjoy that and to see that flood upwards in the curriculum where, where we can see that there is this integration and where all uh, the art forms are honoured and given space and time. I was wondering, and I guess I'm, I'm particularly wondering Tom's perspective on this, but I was wondering whether or not we are privileged in New South Wales, and God bless the Board of Studies Teaching and Educational Standards, for um, taking time with the implementation and rolling out of Phase 1 and later Phase 2 mm. of the National Curriculum. They've done us a great service in taking the time and making sure that that's supported and rolled out in a way that we can actually manage change. Uh, but can we, because of our privileged position, I guess, in New South Wales, actually say, thank you very much, Minister Pine, but in New South Wales, we will approach our curriculum in a way that does honour the arts uh, as a family of siblings that are all valued equally and believe that every child from the time they enter our educational institutions should be given quality time to engage with that, uh, these art forms here in at least New South Wales. We can't save Australia, maybe we can save New South Wales. Well, we can say, we can say New South Wales, we can say the position that we'll take uh, to, 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 to present nationally. And I, I guess, I think it's counterproductive and it, it relates to some of the earlier questions to uh, position ourselves in the uh, competing space. I don't think we need to. I don't uh, not recognise Kerry's points. I think they're, they're, they're true, but really, the forum you're in and the circumstance you're in determines what you emphasise. And in the context of designing a curriculum, the key point I'd want to emphasise for primary years, where I think a, a, um, the overcrowded curriculum is, is real, I would want to emphasise two points. One is that when curriculum is developed at a distance from the implementers, it is more vulnerable to, um, to lobbying. So it isn't really the arts that's a problem. It's the idea that there's 50 hours of civics, 50 hours of business for primary schools. Right? Now it's, and so everyone, you know, farmers, statisticians, anyone who had an idea goes to uh, uh, the minister, and if that minister is not responsible for schooling, then it's far easier to accept that lobbying. So I'd want to emphasise that, and I'd want to emphasise uh, the fact that uh, we can conceive of curriculum in a more integrated uh, fashion, and it's very important to emphasise that that can be glib, you know, go ahead and integrate mm. teachers. Uh, that's not what I mean. It's actually about establishing substantive and genuine links based on learning that highlight the relationship uh, in issues. And then we have to, as a profession, uh, discipline ourselves within each domain to be, uh, to concentrate on what is absolutely essential for all 
uh, students at all stages of learning, not what we'd like them to learn, but what is essential, building towards what we'd like them to be as a result of schooling. So I think, while I recognise, of course, that in the end there are real issues about, th th there, are, there are differences between the arts, there are different epistemological uh, histories and theoretical and knowledge bases and skills, etc., uh, that there are areas of learning that have, uh, that work uh, off each other, uh, that that's sophisticated modern education and there's so much more to be had out of that we really need not uh, engage in the... Um, the, the, the sort of uh, zero-sum game. I think the reason it became a zero-sum game was a lack of genuine consultative uh, process in uh, or successful. I don't want to doubt the genuineness, uh, but in the end it wasn't a successful consultative process as the Australian curriculum was being developed, and that allowed a vacuum for a counter-argument uh, allowed genuine space for some of the arguments being made by the uh, the reviewers. I don't know, John, if that answers your question, but um, I, I, I guess I'm saying we don't have to buy into that space outside internal forums. We can fight it out internally, like siblings, I guess. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, as siblings, um, thank you very much uh, to our panel. Can you please thank our panel? I'd also like to thank the incomparable Meredith Hall who makes Sydney ideas happen every single time and uh, deals with my hopelessness. So thank you, Meredith. Uh, and on a final note, I've also I'd like to thank Darlington in their absence. And on a final note, I'd like to thank you. Uh, uh, given that uh, in the room there are different views on uh, this area, but what the one thing that's uh, never in doubt is how passionate people who work in the arts and in arts education are. I'd like to thank you for your passion. I'd like to thank you for going to work each day in the schools, in the universities, in the places that you work uh, to do the best job you possibly can for the kids in your care because that actually matters to me as a parent, uh, matters to me as someone who works in the arts. So thank you for caring enough to be here tonight. Thank very you very much. much.